There is then a philosophy of life in Spinoza. It consists precisely in denouncing all that separates us from life, all these transcendent values that are turned against life, these values that are tied to the conditions and illusions of consciousness. Life is poisoned by the categories of good and evil, of blame and merit, of sin and redemption. What poisons life is hatred, including the hatred that is turned back against oneself in the form of guilt. Spinoza traces, step by step, the dreadful concatenation of sad passions, first sadness itself, then hatred, aversion, mockery, fear, despair, morsis consentiae, pity, indignation, envy, humility, repentance, self-abasement, shame, regret, anger, vengeance, cruelty. His analysis goes so far that even in hatred and security, he is able to find that grain of sadness that suffices to make these the feelings of slaves. The true city offers citizens the love of freedom instead of the hope of rewards or even the security of possessions. For it is slaves, not free men, who are given rewards for virtue. Spinoza is not among those who think that a sad passion has something good about it. Before Nietzsche, he denounces all the falsifications of life, all the values in the name of which we disparage life. We do not live. We only lead a semblance of life. We can only think of how to keep from dying, and our whole life is a death worship. The very roots of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's discussion, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there, but if not, maybe a great review on iTunes. And uh, just shout out to Rabbit and Costello for leaving the amazing review there for us within the last couple of weeks. Very much appreciate that. Today, Taylor and I will be looking at Deleuze's Spinoza, Practical Philosophy, increasing our power, increasing our potency. Hopefully that'll translate to the rest of you and uh, you know, we'll construct a powerful, potent body. A network. There we go. A body without a organs, nexus, maybe even a, a body nexus. without organs of some kind. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, I got a few organs still. I'm going to have to <laughs> keep a couple of them just to, to increase our power. Speaking of, you know, I forgot to put this in the notes, so I'm just going to say it now and maybe derail our whole conversation a bit. Excellent. I, <laughs> Excellent. I was just thinking back to the episode we did on Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Oh, yeah. And das, I think this das ding. this would go towards, um, I think, the way that Spinoza conceives of the body, right? It's like, it's not about the sort of 
what would you call it, the nomenclatura of the body about identifying its constituent parts, let's say, right? But about what the body does, and we see within the autopsy on Swamp Thing within you know that episode that the right. organs are merely they're sort of these semblances of life. They have no actual function. What is the function? What can a body do? What can Swamp Thing's body do is sort of the question there that I think kind of had an interesting little overlap or like a model for understanding a model of the body, if you yeah. will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to get get that out while I was well, just thinking to, about it. Just to go along that that witch's ride with you, as <laughs> Deleuze calls it, right? You know, it, it's you know Deleuze, I think, refers to it as is, and he may have been stealing this phrase from someone else that, like with Spinoza, you you kind of hop on the witch's broom and ride ride this ride with him. You may have already been familiar with his notion of buggering philosophers in the history of right. philosophy, right? So. You know, you try to take Nietzsche from behind and he takes you from behind. Spinoza kind of like gently resists, but it's in this context where you can't bugger Spinoza. You just got to like jump on the the broom, the witch's broom with him. You're definitely right, though. I mean, like it's not necessarily about identifying parts in I, isolation. Yeah, right. And like, I think the classification of function, I guess, to Luz or Spinoza or to Le, through Spinoza, et cetera, is like getting at is that it's not it goes to this kind of transcendental problem. This type of knowledge being more concerned about these sort of transcendental categories and identifications than what can be accomplished. And I think that is a problem of thinking, right? That is a that is like kind of baked into the dogmatic image of thought is to think of this classificatory mechanism or like to think of life as naming things and, you know, to go to Adam even, right? What the animals do is a much more useful like grouping things in terms right. of their function right. does a lot more to contribute to the growth of knowledge than, you know, these sort of arbitrary categories, which as we understand through the system of signifiers don't really ultimately connect. This is why towards the end of the book, Deleuze brings up one of his favorite kind of weirdo 18th century thinkers, this biologist named Geoffrey Santelaire, who's looking at relations of composition rather than, as you said, parts. And so in that sense, it's Deleuze links this type of, he's thinking about the heirs of Spinoza and he puts Santelaire there and, and Santelaire shows up in Deleuze's work in Different Repetition and back in A Thousand Plateaus, but it's about these relations that are more fundamental or more explanatory than than naming parts as you said but Deleuze doesn't link it to the transcendental in that sense he links it to right. he links it to experimentation that's kind of what i was saying is that right. like the functionality has a more grounded material empirical mm -hmm. aspect to it whereas it generates a false knowledge a useless knowledge but in a certain sense it's interesting you bring up the 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 system of signifiers that is instituted in the the name game of Genesis, right, with all the animals being brought out and Adam naming them. You know, looking at that that story, there is a whole boosting of power through the development of language. And there's a lot of joy in this little game that Adam and, and God play together. If you kind of read between the lines. Right, yeah, because language a, can build connections between bodies. Right. Or just between itself, right, as a system of signifiers, as you kind of brought out, right? As you said, they yeah, I mean, I was the thinking name. the reverse that this is like a bad in the sense that it sets up these kind of like spooks or like these 
It's bad for knowledge, perhaps. It's bad. It's bad for the the type of knowledge that Spinoza is trying to develop. The different tiers, it would still remain inadequate notions. But insofar as the signifiers really are building the system, as you point out, it has nothing to do with. You said very well. It has nothing to do with the entities under the naming. There is something about developing that system of signifiers that only relates to themselves where the boosting of power and, and the joy that you see in this game that they're playing together is the fact that in a certain sense the development of language is coextensive with the dominion that god wants adam to have over the kingdom the kingdom of life so there is a sense in which adam becomes kind of like a little tyrant through the language that is through this little game that they play. Anyway, that's not how Adam is discussed by Spinoza. We'll maybe get into that later, but I, you could you can imagine Spinoza saying something. Actually, since we're on the topic of Adam and knowledge, I mean, that could go to the ethical, that may be a nice segue into the ethical component that the way that God is discussed relative to eating of the tree. Yeah, I mean, but I don't know. I'm, I'll let you maybe there's a whole, I mean, direct we could do, us here. We, we could do a whole episode on this one thing, but Deleuze spends a little time in, uh, we could say chapter two or the second little essay. It's hard to even talk about how this book is. This book is interesting, right? right I mean, yeah, it's weird. <laughs> we do have a little, we do have a little opener that kind of Deleuze, uh, gives us kind of like a biographical note. And he had done this before in several books beforehand. He had done this for Hume. He had done this for Nietzsche, these kind of. You don't see it in all the monographs, but you see him building up a kind of biographical to coordinate with with the development of ideas. But in any case, the second chapter is interesting because he starts with some of the letters that Spinoza exchanges with this guy named Blydenberg. And Blydenberg asks him kind of a question about evil that we can imagine we have asked ourselves, maybe even as this seems like a question that children seem to ask when they start to get a little bit intuitively inquisitive about the nature of, let's say, God or whatnot. And, and Blindberg's basically just kind of asking, like, how could Adam have sinned or done evil? Does that mean that, like, God's not in control of everything? Or does that mean God, too, is you know, the author of evil is this kind of question. And Spinoza, you know, he doesn't really deal with this that much in his public published work, as Deleuze points out, because for Spinoza, evil doesn't really exist. It's not about good and evil. It is about this good and bad, which, you know, you can think of Nietzsche's beyond good and evil. This is why I think Deleuze keeps wanting right. to bring up Nietzsche's interesting fidelity to Spinoza. You know, even if Nietzsche himself doesn't always point back to Spinoza in a good way, a lot of times he will say, hey, there was someone before me who was thinking in this in this light of reevaluating values, established values, especially. But in any case, this question of evil is interesting for Spinoza, at least at the beginning of their exchange in these letters. And I would say that the most interesting thing, right, is for Spinoza, the way that it turns about is eating the tree is not evil in the sense in which God made a command, a prohibition in Adam, or, you know, however you read the story with Eve or being influenced by Eve, however you want to read it. I mean, Spinoza pretty much focuses on Adam, right. interestingly enough, in the exchange, which has its own implications or not on the history of misogyny and Western thought for thousands of years. But in any case, for Spinoza, Adam doesn't sort of 
commit an evil by disobeying an order. That already presupposes evil with this capital E. It's the fact that for Spinoza, it is this very much loosely materialist thing where the fruit represents a poison, as Deleuze keeps keeps calling it, a toxin, something that will decompose the relations of our body, the, the relations of our essence even. And insofar as it decomposes our relations, it sort of reduces our power. That's where we go from eating the fruit being evil to it being bad. So there's this different typology that Deleuze kind of wants to set up following Spinoza, where it's it's no longer about these transcendent things, where evil is sort of, it would have an essence and it would be kind of established from on high and it would be something that we have to observe and and sort of accord ourselves with based on a judgment of God, but would be more of imminent relations in the world where yeah 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 exactly you know where it is about experience and experimentation and this is also the interesting thing about we can imagine the prehistory of of humans for hundreds if not tens if not hundreds of thousands of years i mean how many different poisons did we have to like come into contact with to know which foods to avoid and which not to right i mean like there's all kinds of interesting things if you from an anthropological or archaeological perspective. Right. But I think that that's where good and bad become vectors for experimentation and for sort of criteria for boosting our powers and what sort of quote unquote makes us healthier. And uh, I think this is the language that Nietzsche will constantly use is this criterion of health and sickness. But it's not an absolute thing for Nietzsche either, though, right? Because when you're sick, you get a new perspective on health. When you're healthy, you get a new perspective on sickness. And so even there, quote unquote, bad things for us that decompose our power could lead to a certain type of knowledge after right. the fact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Because that's another problem, yeah. perhaps. It's a problematic yeah, it was, to solve, right? It's another problem. We learn. So maybe this is where like, you should never, what is the maxim that I quoted from Shaihulud that's like, <laughs> be prepared to appreciate what you meet. Yeah. Because you never know what it could bring, right? <laughs> not, not to be unworthy of what happens to us. There is definitely a sense in which, what is it? Um, Problems present opportunities. There is a pr opportunity for more life, but there's also, conversely, there's the opportunity to be decomposed, etc. Like meet meet something that decomposes one. But like you said, that doesn't have to be absolute, right? It could be a relative thing. We don't necessarily die from all illnesses. We don't necessarily die from all poisons either. It's not right. a right. It's not that sort of like ultimate death sentence, perhaps, but provides an opportunity to solve a problem creatively. There are all kinds of I'm not an immunologist and whatnot, but there are all kinds of interesting facts about the development of aseptics and antiseptics. Obviously important, great boost in health, but in the long term can create these super strains of bacteria that are resistant to penicillin or, or whatnot, or can lead to humans relying more on external agents for their own immuno systems rather than, rather than maybe a little bit of dose of unhealthiness, if you will, quote unquote, a little yeah. bit of dose of bacteria and these other things can help the body naturally build. Um, it's, so, so it's obviously a trade-off. 
you can imagine with modern progresses in, in medicine and technology. And I think that that kind of goes a long way to, to sort of what you were saying, right? That there is, you know, a little, little doses of whether it be where we think of as dirtiness or just a little dose of pathogens in the right amount and in the right sort can keep the body actively vigilant rather than solely relying on you know clean rooms and and whatnot right. if you'll recall from blade runner whenever roy batty jams the the nail into his hand right the intensity of it the effect of the body keeps him going for a while it's a good point did you ever watch house no but I also have another interesting pop culture related thing to this too. Oh, you get you get to make pop culture references, <laughs> but, not, but I don't. Okay. Uh, well, go ahead. Go ahead with House. No, no. He's, he's so he has a. I'm familiar he, enough with the show, but I didn't really watch. He it. gets in a motorcycle accident. His leg is supposed to be amputated. He's he's a doctor, and he is stubborn as fuck, and he says he just wants a surgery. So he ends up kind of with this mutilated leg that causes him chronic intense pain. So he's always on Vicodin, which usually helps him to solve his little cases like a Sherlock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy, but it, then Smoking it, opium, et cetera. But it obviously leads to other types of problems. And so, you know, some long story short, he tries to get off of Vicodin. His leg starts to hurt and he like slams his hand in, in a door because it rewires the brain from feeling the pain to his leg to his hand. And at least that's that's like a difference, right? There's right. like yeah. a differential in intensity that allows him to focus for, but uh, you know, go ahead with your, your reference, Mr. Mr. Pop culture, Mr. D Dr. Pop. So I watched Prometheus this week and thinking about the beginning of the movie, I'm assuming you've seen yeah. Prometheus, correct? Okay. So you've got the engineer character, right? He drinks the little concoction that ends up right. It like decomposes his body for him, for Prometheus. Yes. It's a sort of poison, but it has a positive impact in that his DNA or whatever that is his decomposition leads to the generation of of more life and more potential for connections and the construction of bodies and so forth, which I think is kind of an interesting. I mean, I think that kind of goes back to this notion of sickness, health, and how a sickness, a problem, is not necessarily a problems aren't evil, right? Yeah, per se. There's a lot of. Evil does seem to be for Spinoza, and this is a, he's not the first to kind of say this, but he works it out in more and more complex ways in the letters, which Deleuze kind of gives us a scaffold for understanding. But, you know, Spinoza is not the first to say that evil is, is a nothingness. This is kind of how he is able to absolve God. And remember, for Spinoza, God is not the personal God, not a Christian God, not even a, a Jewish God of his, you know, of his ancestry it is definitely more you know there's arguments whether it's more atheist or pantheist that doesn't really matter right it's what he says deus siwe natura right it's substance it's the unity of composition of nature it's much more of a kind of cosmic and personal type of god and in that sense any ascription of evil is a human is, is on the realm of human understanding so there would always be some sort of self-serving not necessarily purely narcissistic but in a certain way it would be at its base a way of casting this transcendent type of if something is evil then it no longer seems to be relative from my position 
right? It seems to take on this absolute as you were mm-hmm. bringing up earlier. And there's something self-serving to that insofar as the descriptor of evil takes on an intensive an intensified identification, it allows a group to form an identity with respect to the evil, right? To be fought yeah. against and cast out. And, you know, there's a, so in that sense, it's not just an individual, but a collective narcissism. It's a collective. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, investment of but, collective investment in our own servitude. That's an interesting way to put it. I would say that it, it, <laughs> I would say that it um, it follows more from obedience, right? Because it is this command to not to give in to to evil, and so it's not really to be able to question or formulate conditions of knowledge about that which is evil. In a certain way, believing in evil in that sense also ironically leads us to Spinoza's idea that it's a nothingness. Because right. if evil can't be questioned or can't be put into context, can't be thought about through other connecting relations of knowledge to show how it's imminent and therefore not evil, right? It's not from some sort of transcendent plane of of values. If that can't be done, then we are sort of left with an acceptance, an acceptance of a judgment on a slightly related note, although it's 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 a much different sort of path of ideas, Adorno kind of gets to something like this at the end of Negative Dialectics. And I won't go into Adorno, it's just I'm just thinking about it now where you have to be very careful with these descriptors of evil. It can easily turn from a lowercase e to a to this capital E, to this transcendent, denunciatory, self-righteous mode of categorization that really puts a halt to thinking. It limits our ability to think. It limits our ability to solve problems because it says the problem of sickness, let's say, can't be solved. The problem of scarcity can't be solved. But as Spazonoza says, we don't know what the fuck a body can do yet. Before we get into the difference between a morality and ethics, which I think is very clear and Deleuze does us a good service in, in describing, which we've already kind of been describing in a certain sense. I do think um, your point is very much important for for noting the, I suppose, just to sum up in terms of evil, and I may have lost my train, train of thought. <laughs> well, like evil bit. as a, evil as a, um, evil forecloses thought. I remember what I was going to be. So what I, what I reminded of is. We talked about this a lot in the anti-Oedipus stuff, so I'll be quick. But when we were discussing anti-Oedipus, you know, Deleuze and Guattari come up to bringing up Reich pretty early on. They have their critiques of him, but he's someone who sounds very Spinozis when he's like, look, the masses were not duped. They desired fascism. And so if we say, if we were to just to say the masses were tricked by some kind of transcendent transcendent evil or even if we agree with the statement and say that oh they they desired fascism because they were evil then there's there's no way of understanding the conditions under which they could desire something that would be eminently bad for not only them but potentially for the general welfare or the human genre mankind or whatever you want to call it right, right. i mean like there's a sense in which refusing to 
asked the question of under what conditions they could desire fascism by stamping by stamping the other with the notion of with it being evil is it's useful for a certain type of collective you know investment it's useful for a certain type of collective organization and mobilization of energies because after the war fascism defeated we needed a new enemy right that easily gets to place this place onto communism and one could easily see how communism becomes the new evil and from other aspects capitalism is itself an evil so there really are just different sides lobbying the same type of transcendent attribute at each other and it prevents any sort of well i'll just be loose here it prevents any sort of like dialectical interaction it just becomes stagnant categories a stalemate yeah yeah right now on the other hand the last thing to say about good and evil that doesn't mean that one should say well because hitler's been called evil for you know the past 100 years or so he's been done dirty by history or something like that that's not really to to say we need to start new investigations into apologizing for the nazis or something like this it's not to create new arguments to establish them as a transcendent good with the capital right, right. G. yeah yeah that would just be a reversal of of these transcendent values and you know you see on twitter recently with the with the blue check mark race consciousness <laughs> dude that i mean finally got banned but you see uh elon and and the kind of accounts that he's allowed to flourish under the new twitter regime right you see that kind of shit and that's just a reversal of capital e evil into capital g good right like right hitler's, yeah hitler's exactly. the most maligned figure in history so we need to restore him to the dignity of of his truth again with a capital t when that's not at all sort of the point the point being that we have to be very careful with these with these terms lest they sort of reify into these uh solidify into these into these categories that don't allow for for us to continue thinking instead yeah. of being these these halts these halting points in in thinking i mean these have got to persist in the unconscious right i mean this goes back to kind of uh hegel almost and like the way that we create god and then we forget the fact that we created god becomes illegible there's a forgetting I don't know. Maybe this is like something like the Quitsats Hatterack is a problem, is a solution to this, even like just to be a little bit jokey here. Because the Quitsats Hatterack has access to the memories, right? So he knows how things started. Maybe I can cut that out. We'll see. And I guess that too would also mirror Nietzsche saying that God persists in the unconscious. You're muted. Oh, I was just saying, like, you know, your point about the Quitsats Hatterack would be as though in the biblical story of Jesus, he had knowledge that, you know, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, the story of the Messiah had been this propaganda that was insinuated throughout the culture. And he's the culmination of that. That's the only real thing that I can try to turn your Dune references <laughs> from this obscure inside game thing to yeah. something more common. There's this quote, this is from Deleuze. 
law is always the transcendent instance that determines the opposition of values, capital G good versus capital E evil. But knowledge is always the eminent power that determines the qualitative difference of modes of existence, good, bad. Even talking about the transcendental which is about this sort of a priori knowledge, sort of what we can know before experience or any sort of contamination with experience or from experience. And law would be this transcendent instance that gives us good, evil, before any sort of being in the world, to use a phrase out of its context. That's why Deleuze wants to set law and judgment, or what he calls judgment of God. Later, he'll talk about the the strata as as little judgments of God, or the order word as judgments of God. They carry these little death sentences, right, where they institute beforehand modes of enslavement, or at least modes of the lack of freedom, right? They kind of insinuate us in a whole determinate chain of causality within which we have no way of figuring out our role actively in it versus good, bad, which is not capital G, capital B, but obviously these lowercase instances where it is about a more a posteriori, right after the fact. It is immersed in experience. It is immersed in experimentation, which the French get to play on that and have fun with that because they can use one word for both, for experiment and experience. They get this happy little play. The same with the word for conscious and consciousness. They have one word for it. And so when, when Deleuze is comparing Spinoza and Nietzsche and their, they have kind of a diatribe against consciousness, it's also a diatribe against conscience. It's a diatribe against these feelings of resentiment and these feelings of bad, bad conscience, these feelings of guilt, shame, all the things that kind of reduce our power, all the things that are, we associate with the morality you know, conceivably guilt, shame, sort of self-hatred, self-denial, all these things are supposedly through morality meant to train us to be better. And I to train that, us to be good Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Good Americans, good citizens, good, either citizens of the state or citizens of the kingdom of God. With ethics and morality, and we can move on from this just to, because we've kind of already talked about it. You know, Deleuze says ethics is a typology of eminent modes of existence, right? So I think that for me, that means that we can't refer it to some sort of system of values that's imposed from outside. It has to be sort of navigated and negotiated through lived experience, both individual and collective. And morality refers existence to transcendent values. This is why I think. Nietzsche is the is one of the engines or catalysts in this book. It's the first word in the book that Deleuze puts, right? There's a reason why that is, because the revaluation of all values is going to be sort of Deleuze's constant thought. Nietzsche is this little like thought companion for, I don't want to say intensifying intensifying Spinoza's thought, but at least for abridging it, right? Because Spinoza Practical Philosophy is a very compact book. I think this right. is why there's a glossary in it mm -hmm. where Deleuze is like, I'm going to give the big concepts and really like jam pack it instead of it being this long-winded exegesis. It is kind of just a little forays, these little skirmishes in some of the ideas throughout Spinoza. But in any case, the fact that Nietzsche's 
concerned with values and fighting against their reestablishment, as Leotar might say, right? Like getting our hands dirty in the decadence of values. And um, that, I think, is where specifically morality would be this bulwark, this sort of damming up against the decay, decline of values, specifically through the instantiation of rituals, right? This is this gets us to some of what you were talking about with the traditional return to tradition type thinkers where, right. you know, we've, we've sort of lost all these different nostalgically, right, in our imagination, obviously, imaginarily, we've lost all these different rituals that, that made us cohere as a good society. But so many of those rituals were based on exclusion, if you think. Right. They, yeah, exactly. They had, they had an exclusionary base to allow for certain individuals to function right yeah exactly and cohere in their rituals so there's a glorification of the inclusionary aspects of of the rituals but a sort of forgetting and a downplaying and an, and an ignoring and neglecting right yeah exactly of the exclusionary bases of it there's something that would be more honest you know with acknowledging the joy in the cruelty of excluding again going back to nietzsche I, I forget which book it is it could be any of a number of them maybe gay science maybe beyond good and evil but he describes i think it's a he's a third century kind of christian early christian theologian his name's tertullian and he talks about how there's going to be like in heaven there's glass floors and there's glass ceilings in hell there's glass floors in heaven so that the the chosen ones, the saved, can look down on those in hell right. who are damned in their suffering, and it intensifies their joy. And I think that in that sense, Nietzsche finds this disgusting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. His own take on it. But you could imagine from what we've been saying from Spinoza, even though we haven't really laid it out much, I mean, insofar as one of the aspects of Spinoza's ethics is how do we increase our power in such a way that that is to be understood as joy. With Tertullian, he finds joy in this cruelty. But I think that for Spinoza, there's a sense in which, in the end of the day, this would still be a reactionary sad passion. Because if our joy is predicated on the suffering of others, at the end of the day, it's a self-defeating process. We can think about a parasite that devours its host. Or capitalism Well, exactly. being the best example. But go ahead. Capitalism would be like this parasite that at the end of the day, however delayed it may be, it devours the very, you think of it as whether it be the conditions of possibility of life on earth or the resources, the finite resources that the earth has to exploit at a certain point. There's a similar ethic too, I think, in the the looking down, like the wealthy looking down at the I don't know the. I call them this, like, like the the, proletari the proletarian, the scapegoat, like the designated yeah. scapegoat. And I don't want to derail too far, but I think I have a good point I want to bring up regarding like markets, the capitalist well, you, market in particular. I really know. like I really like this point. Just just before you you sure. go to, no, to go this ahead. point about markets, your point about how Tertullian is, if you think about it, if Christianity comes from what Nietzsche calls a slave morality, which is a loaded term, but very quickly, I mean, if we think about Christianity beginning as a kind of proletariat, the dispossessed right. taking power rather than a bourgeois revolution in a certain sense, right? It is more or less those 
who are quote unquote persecuted and who do not own the means of production, blah, blah, blah. I think that it's interesting to see, you know, kind of like in what it's somewhere in Matthew where Jesus talks about how the first will be last and the last will be first. There is this literal revolution, this literal, like, you know, the dispossessed, the, the, the proles, the, the meek shall inherit the, the, the earth. The plebeian Christians will out of this life be the ones laughing and looking down on the, you know, the, the rich men who are like the camel entering the eye of the needle, yeah, right? Exactly. Like they, they couldn't quite fit their money bags through. So I, I like your, I like your quasi or at least roughly Marxist reading of Tertullian's little joy at saying, well, who's going to laugh last. Right. But you can see how that comes from that. that that's there's a sadistic. Uh, yeah. It's sadistic. It's not, it's not ethical in the Spinoza sense. Not directly, at least, right? It, as you said, it comes from resentment, right? It mm -hmm. comes from this resentment about wanting to, you're wanting to, to sort of project back the suffering to those you, you know, you believe have, have inflicted it on you. Anyway, you wanted to say something about, about markets. A couple of things. So one aspect of this would be like, if you have to produce value, if you have an obligation to produce value then you're a slave because only slaves are rewarded for behavior. They're working in the field of knowledge, right? For the master. They're right. cre creating the surplus. Yeah. So versus, you know, just to get into the Marxist thing here too, it's like by like predicating your existence, your the reproduction of your body within the social through scarcity, which goes to markets, right? Because markets are are mechanism for dealing with the quote-unquote problem of scarcity i think the ethics of the market of the capitalist market are about this relationship between the problems those who solve problems and those who benefit from the solution of problems right because on one end of the market those who control capital they don't have the same problems their lives are less problematic right when you're ever you're at the bottom of the sort of social hierarchy or pecking order etc you encounter a lot more problems you have to be a lot more resourceful you're put in a life or death situation that is a provocation to thought so this is where the ethics of like innovation what's one of the capitalist arguments against communism is that it's not as innovative what capitalism is predicated on is a slavery and trying to say that overall the collective via the market is typically on average on the average not on every specific decision but on average any innovation that succeeds within the market should on average correspond with the social good with a social problem with fixing a problem or providing a service or a benefit that is desired by the social but as we can see what is desired does not always if we look at this tertullian sort mm -hmm. of predicament right the sadistic element of deriving joy from the suffering of others i don't know that's problematic you hit a bunch of points and some of this we <laughs> talked about before we we started talking and and your point about the regime of the problems that are posed that are encountered by by those with the who control the means of production, who are benefiting from the surplus value, which we could put in the, the master side of the, the diagram, whether we think in the Hegelian Lord Bondsman master-slave dialectic or in, you know, Lacan's different discourses. You know, you're right. There is something about how the 
problems that are faced by them is the problem of accruing more surplus value, which, as you said, is built off the backs of of those in the because if life is a test, right? If life is a test with problems, as Deleuze says at some point in this thing, right? Well, it's a test not about following orders or or following an established regime of values, but of what experimenting, experimenting yeah. for uh... right. So you can do you do you see what I'm the relationship I'm drawing between like the dispossessed, like the dispossessed at the bottom of the capitalist hierarchy, right? Like they're put on death's ground to like draw from Sun Tzu, right? It's like they have no choice but to think, right? But someone like Elon doesn't have a force, a pressure, an evolutionary testing pressure to force thought. So thought stagnates. And this is the dynamism of capitalism that's able to, that's why it regenerates, right? It's like, it's an improvement in a sense, like from a collective aspect where the king or the sovereign determined what was generated because it's bottlenecked through the desire of the sovereign the social benefit is sort of decreased right but ever whenever we open that up to a market where no one no sovereign no one individual is responsible for who decides who is at the bottom of the pecking order that diffuses the responsibility and makes it a collective responsibility which i think is what markets are really like the function of markets is to allocate scarcity to certain people and the benefit of capitalism and markets is to place people in a position where they have no other choice but to think creatively you know the proletarian think creatively and the wealthy extract those and use that and they accumulate the innovations of others and that goes all the way back to the development of language the testing out of is this a poison or is this a, a food that's going to sustain me? The list doesn't differ from repetition that it's basically the ability to formulate problems that is that's how, that's their true power. That, that 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 is the true power. So in any case, this is a good quote. This can help us finish out the ethics and morality thing. If ethics and morality merely interpreted the same precepts in a different way, the distinction between them would only be theoretical. This is not the case. Throughout his work, Spinoza does not cease to denounce these does not cease to denounce three kinds of personages. The man with sad passions, the man who exploits these sad passions, who needs them in order to establish his power, and the man who is saddened by the human condition and by human passions in general. He may make fun of these as much as he disdains them, but this mockery is a bad laughter. The slave, the tyrant, and the priest, the moralist trinity. Since Epicurus and Lucretius, the deep implicit connection between tyrants and slaves has never been more clearly shown. Quote, and I believe this is Spinoza. Quote, in despotic statecraft, the supreme and essential mystery is to hoodwink the subjects and to mask the fear which keeps them down with the specious garb of religion so that men may fight as bravely for slavery as for safety and count it not shame but highest honor to risk their blood and lives for the vainglory of a tyrant. This is possible because the sad passion is a complex that joins desire's boundlessness to the mind's confusion, cupidity to, to superstition. Quote, those who most ardently embrace every sort of superstition cannot help but be those who most immoderately desire external advantages. The tyrant needs sad spirits in order to succeed, just as sad spirits need a tyrant in order to be content and to multiply. In any case, what unites them is their hatred of life, their resentment against life. The ethics draws the portrait of the resentful man for whom all happiness is an offense and who makes wretchedness or impotence his only passion. 
I think this goes to this notion of the typology of eminent modes of existence, right? Like there's the type of resentful man. And then potentially, once we understand that, which seems to be more of the normal mode of functioning in the world, right? Beset by all of the different struggles one has to face in order to live, even whether or not in a capitalist society, right? Just there's a way in which the resentful man wants to turn everything that happens to him into a complaint, right? This is the not to be unworthy of what happens to us, right? This is not to sort of exceed to the the wound for which we were born. There's a sense in which that always blaming others or always blaming external circumstances, whether or not those may have relative merit, there's a sense in which one already kind of abnegates one's freedom. Right. right? These are bad thoughts. They're not evil thoughts. They're uh, they're bad thoughts. And in any so they're not they, terminal, right? They're not necessarily no. terminal, but they are bad, right? They well, de- if, if they, they decompose, they may not fully decompose us entirely, but they certainly think, contribute to a sickness, let's say. I, th- I think if they're taken as an end in itself, as the end, end of the story, then they become eminently bad. Eminently bad with an E, right? They become like the highest bad. Because if, if thought stops there at resentment, because there is a certain sense in which resentment like sin, you know, we all fall short, so to speak, right? It's going, it's going to happen based on, and this is the important thing, I think, this is the interesting thing about Spinoza, based on the fact that for the most part, we are immersed in and assaulted by inadequate notions, right? Where we are generally like swimming within the inadequacy of knowledge. And this this is mostly based on the imagination. This is mostly based on these confused notions as Deleuze lays it out. And so, you know, at this first level of knowledge, these inadequate notions, if we remain there, there is the constant sort of chance and usually overwhelming chance that we're going to remain in resentment. But to a certain extent, you know, as we kind of mentioned earlier, inadequate notions in and of themselves aren't inherently bad. They can lead to these higher tiers of knowledge, specifically the second tier of knowledge, which Deleuze and Spinoza call the common notions, which can sort of bring us to the knowledge of relations and blah, 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 which you know, I don't think we really have enough time to sort of tear up the knowledge that leads us to the knowledge of God, ourselves, and things, this third knowledge, which is sort of this eternal, essential knowledge. Fleshing that out is sort of what Deleuze does in the book, at least throughout the glossary. That's one of the threads, interestingly enough, right? Because it's not just any old dictionary. There is a kind of theoretical, reasoned development throughout the the glossary and the that makes up the the majority of the work that we read today but i think that that's the interesting thing we talked about earlier how inadequate knowledge can lead us out of it you know just in the very fact that um i mean whether we take you know the stuff we mentioned about about poisons earlier or about sicknesses earlier which give us different perspectives on health, blah, 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 or whether we sort of can think about it in the revolutionary vein, which you started to open up for us, right? You know, there is a sense in which complaining and being resentful can lead to striving to understand the conditions under which 
those complaints have certain merit that can lead us to um yeah stagnation of of thought or to fight against that stagnation right we can we can allow ourselves to mire in it or we can it can sort of push us to to perhaps understand the causes yeah suppose you're right yeah my like drive is to understand and like figure out okay what are the weak points where can we attack what tools can we mobilize where are the choke points where are the weaknesses where are opportunities for to exploit one of the questions that Deleuze and Guattari kind of continually work on in various ways in Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus and in other sort of collaborations around those periods, right? They are thinking about how this gets back to it, right? Where you started off in your, um, what was the cold open about Spinoza as, was it a philosophy of life? Was it a, was it a song of life? Philosophy of life. Yeah, philosophy of life. This is where, you know, in Anti-Oedipus, right from the beginning of chapter two, they're asking, maybe not the beginning, sort of in the middle, they kind of lament the fact that, you know, psychoanalysis could have been a song of life. And instead, it became a kind of a song of death that really just sort of um, sort of adapted our symptom, our resentment or our resentment adapted it in such a way that it could perhaps become less psychically harmful and orient us into being, whether it be good workers or well-adjusted individuals, however you want to say it, right? I think this is what they see in, in psychoanalysis, despite some of its good intentions for helping people. I think in the end, they see how it becomes this reactionary enterprise, especially with regard to whether it be sexuality or in the end with Oedipus and, and capitalism, yada, yada, yada. I think this is why for them, schizoanalysis is if we, they don't call it this, but if we take their point of view, you know, ideally it is to try to take up this, it has been those aspects obviously, but it's, it's, it's trying to take up the song of life that I think Deleuze finds in his, the thinkers he mobilizes, Spinoza, Nietzsche, Lucretius, Bergson, you know, finding these, these weapons so that we aren't turning against life. We talked about this in Twilight Idols, you know, Nietzsche has such an interesting and intense relationship to Socrates, but towards the end of his writing in uh, Twilight Idols, he sees Socrates as kind of this reactionary resentful creature, right? Who is, I owe Asclepius, the god of healing, a rooster for, for giving me this poison. And what's interesting too, is we talked about, we talked with Chantelle Gray. I know we didn't talk a, a lot about the Pharmacon with her, but throughout her work, she is hinting on this, the Pharmacon, the poison that's, that's also a medicine. I do think though, that for Nietzsche, right, to at the end of, of life, to see life as this, as just a history of disease, and something to be uh, to be cured. Symptomatology. So we, it's a symptom of a certain type of life. It's a symptom of a kind of resentful, judging life. God. I think you said symptomatology, and it's really interesting that Deleuze takes this up. Obviously, Nietzsche tries to inaugurate it. You could probably find it in other thinkers, too, in different forms. But I think that for Deleuze and Nietzsche, judging which type of life, which 
values, which system of values is indicative of a certain type of life. This, this allows us to kind of ring out hollow idols, right? Like someone like Socrates. But I think for Nietzsche, a symptomatology of a type of life based on or with respect to a, you know, a regime of, of values is different than judging life to core, right? Ju judging life as a whole, mm -hmm. because judging life from within life, judging all life, if you will, which is one of the consequences of a morality, that's where we see a decadence or a, re or a resentment that mm -hmm. is only, that leads very quickly to nihilism, a kind of nihilism that takes itself as the goal rather than a nihilism that's able to confront itself and overcome itself, right? A self-defeating nihilism would be kind of Nietzsche's going yeah. through the dark night and coming out on the yeah, other side, ready exactly. to create new values. Let me just read this, uh, this little quote, and maybe that can kind of set us towards concluding. In every, in every society, Spinoza will show it is a matter of obeying and nothing else. This is why the notions of fault, of merit, and demerit of good and evil are exclusively social, having nothing to do with obedience and disobedience. The best society then will be one that exempts the power of thinking from the obligation to obey and takes care in its own interest, not to subject thought to the rule of the state, which only applies to actions. As long as thought is free, hence vital, nothing is compromised. When it ceases being so, all the other oppressions are also possible and already realized so that any action becomes culpable, every life threatened. It is certain that the philosopher finds the most favorable conditions in the democratic state and in liberal circles but he never confuses his purposes with those of a state or with the aims of a milieu since he solicits forces and thought that elude obedience as well as blame and fashions the image of a life beyond good and evil, a rigorous innocence without merit or culpability. And he goes on. There's more to that. But I think that that kind of solidifies the little slice of this book that we focused on, right? This difference between a morality that that commands and demands obedience this inherently it gets back to the, to this uh you know thing in anti-oedipus that's refrain i always come back to right where they quote nietzsche and say states armies churches which of these dogs wants to die and why guattari is interested in this injection of an institutional death drive that that is a positive thing because it's about these mortal formations that don't seek to persevere in their own essence in order to ossify and sort of their will to power becomes a you know will of power over others. That's what Guattari is thinking of. And I think that um, that seems to be at play here too, right? Where Yeah, you know, for if, sure. One of the terms we didn't bring up, obviously, we didn't bring up a lot of them, but you know, if the canatus, if we can imagine institutions as individuals that have their own canatus for striving to persevere in their, in their relations and power, and we can think of that in terms of like Nietzsche's thinking will to power as the intensification of canatus, right? Continually increasing in terms of power, right? That can quickly seep over into the most resentful, into a certain opposite because for Spinoza and for Nietzsche, will to power canatus is not about the power of dominating others. That's like its lowest form. And uh, I think that that's its most resentful form. That's, that's where morality is um, 
finds its its seat, finds its uh, its headquarters, where it's it's wanting to uh, to judge, to give commands, to order. This is where my personal reading of Sterner, I think, fits very well. I think he fits very well into the Spinoza's ethics. It is more about this imminent or this imminence, even to the point of like the uh, union of egoists having this inherently has this dissolution component, this death drive aspect. We build a body to solve that problem, and then you know we kind of sort of move on, perhaps to the ne- to the next one. I don't know. Be curious too what you know someone like Schopenhauer relative to the will and kind of because he has this kind of Buddhist on the will and that kind of shit too, right? I think this is ultimately why Nietzsche, even if he finds inspiration in Schopenhauer specifically, and some of the destructive is not the right word, but you know, Schopenhauer does have a, a certain wit, a certain wrath against the status quo that mm-hmm. I think Nietzsche finds helpful for beginning to think about the reevaluation of all values. But ultimately, he rejects Schopenhauer because Schopenhauer has this idea of a will to life that he sees in all life. All life is sort of striving to exist. And in the end, because of, as you mentioned, this this sort of quasi-Buddhistic influx of this kind of religious sentiment that, in fact, this is the kind of the blind will urging itself to live, but insofar as it does, it's it's continuing the cycle of suffering, that the ultimate goal is to extinguish suffering, therefore to extinguish desire, which is the cause of suffering, therefore to extinguish life, which is the cause of desire. And so it's, 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 <laughs> ultimately, so ni- it's ultimately nihilistic. And I think this is why Nietzsche Brilliant. Nietzsche finds that, you know, this is why he, he kind of, again, we talked about tests earlier, right? Mm-hmm. For Deleuze, and as he sees in Spinoza, the test of existence is this physical chemical test, this experimentation of sort of working out these imminent modes of existence. And I think for Nietzsche, he raises this ethical existence test to the ultimate when he's like, and you've seen this. Uh, this was in, recently in our reading, right? I think this was in Chantel Gray's book, right? Where faced with eternally reliving one's life without change, is this a cause for despair? Or is this a cause for exulting in those singular moments that had to have been concatenated in such a way? as to lead to them, right? Any other change, think butterfly effect, right? Any slight change in the in the reliving of our lives would not have led to those moments where we felt the highest joys, right? So Nietzsche's like that ethical test of existence for Nietzsche becomes, do you exult in this prospect of reliving one's life so that one could ascend those those stages of hardship to those feelings of joy and power, not power over, but just sort of potentia and potency in, in Spinoza's sense, right? Or do you despair at, do, are you resentful at all of the, all of those hardships? Do you focus on, on those, those hardships, those struggles, the pain and, and, or do you, exult in the joy that are inevitably chained with them. This is Nietzsche's kind of notion of becoming. If Nietzsche is a thinker of becoming, which I do think he is, he does see how becoming drags along, is chained to this whole trail of being. 
that follows along from it. And you can't, and to try to just isolate those good moments, even if that's a happy thought, is to a certain extent also be resentful for the the hardships that we face that lead up to those feelings of joy. It's very difficult and it's not an easy thing. And I don't think in every moment we can affirm right. that that thing. But, you know, in the highest moments of our power, we can sort of imagine as a thought experiment, you know, what is the thing that I would willfully be reborn eternally to to sort of envision myself enacting and doing and at the height of my power and, and like go go do that singular thing. It's very easy to say that in the abstract, but to actually like focus that and and to enact that is I think something that can, you know, help us to to maybe give some clarity to the goals we we have in life and to select these actions that can lead us to empowering ourselves and others, lead us to higher forms of knowledge and uh, lead us to this, to living ethically in the Deleuzean and in Spinozan sense. How's about that for a, for a concluding statement? What do you think? How I like you feel? it. I feel like, yeah, this is probably a good, probably a good stopping point that will conclude this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins. The very roots of it of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, a pure violence without object This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a clockwork orange. <laughs>